Welcome to another episode of Trees and Lines. Today, we chatted with Bert Stewart, Manager of Reliability Analytics and Vegetation Strategy at National Grid. We covered a lot from technology to change management to National Grid's decision to move from cycle-based to condition-based vegetation approaches. It was a fantastic chat. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to uh, another episode of Trees and Lines with Phil Charlton and I. Today, our guest is Bert Stewart, uh, the Strategic Reliability Analytics Manager of Vegetation Strategy for National Grid. Bert, welcome. Thank you very much. Did I get that right? Did, you did got I get it the, right. I did. Okay, you got a lot yeah, in that yeah, title. Yeah, I mean, the order might have been a little off, but that's okay. You, yeah. you got the you got the gist of it, so all good. Yeah, and, and, and so Bert Bert's at National Grid. He's uh, he's Massachusetts based, and Bert, you know, I guess we have lots to talk about today. We're going to dive into technology and data analytics, and uh, you know how you guys have made this very successful transition from cycle based uh, to condition based. Um, approach. So do you want to start by just giving us a bit of your background, uh, your time at Grid, et cetera? I've really been focused on utility vegetation management almost my, well, pretty much my entire career. Started working for a tree contractor back in the mid nineties to late nineties doing, started started off as residential commercial tree care, um, but then got transferred over to the utility division um, for that tree company. And really, frankly, never looked back. Um, You know, in college, um, I went to school thinking that I was going to be a forester or a park ranger for you know U.S. Forest Service or U.S. Park Service. And sitting through some of my classes, um, my freshman year, we had the opportunity to have guest speakers come in from different segments of of the of the veg- vegetation industry. And when a uh, Army Corps of Engineer person came in um, and talked about their their role, which which was really appealing, really cool. Um, they started talking about salary and then the, uh, utility arborist came in, uh, from a local utility company and he, he started talking about his role and again, very cool stuff that they did and they got the salary. I'm like, Hmm, <laughs> like I may want to rethink this, uh, this career path. And, and, and really I ended up, uh, being fortunate to get, get hired by a investor owned utility right out of college and, uh, spent, uh, uh, nearly 20 years with that utility here here in New England. Um, learned quite a bit, worked with some exceptional people, um, and, and got an incredible amount of experience. Um, eight years ago, I had the opportunity to join National Grid, a colleague of mine uh, that I was that I would engage with over the years uh, through my career, um, was retiring, and he asked me, hey, you interested? I said, sure, I'll, I'll come talk to you. Eight years later, here I am. Um, the role has really really been largely the same with National Grid. Um, geographic areas that I had and today I don't have, um, you know, such as the life of the utility company when you when you reorg and and uh, divest territories and acquire new territories. Um, but one additional role that I did have really the uh, the privilege of of having is reliability analytics. All right. So not necessarily a vegetation management focused group, but it dovetails vegetation management in the utility world very, very well. Of course, we know trees are are typically our number one cause of outages. Um, we invest millions and millions and millions of dollars in trying to mitigate that. So having that group uh, tied in with my vegetation strategy team, I thought was a perfect fit. And as a result, I was able to learn far more about reliability metrics, those impacts, and really how the vegetation piece really can 
can be a, an opportunity to improve those. Comes with its challenges, no doubt, but certainly can be an opportunity to improve those metrics. When we had a chance to meet in, uh, you know, in, in your neck of the woods, something I think that you shared that was really surprising to me was, and if I'm getting this wrong, correct me, but that Massachusetts has the most density of trees per square mile than anywhere else in the country. Is that was that was that right? It, it is. Uh, yeah, tree density in Massachusetts is one of the highest in the nation. Yeah, no doubt. So it does provide a challenge. I want to dive right into this whole like, and again, Phil's gonna you know laugh at me if I'm describing this incorrectly, but and Phil chime in here. Um, but as we've familiarized, or as I've familiarized myself with the utility industry as it relates to vegetation management, um, it's clear to me that the industry is basically mostly on a cycle-based sort of approach in terms of how they manage their vegetation assets, right? And you guys, uh, you know, we're at the forefront of shifting to a little bit more of that condition-based analytical approach to how you want to approach your vegetation assets. So, you know, when did that transition happen and um, what led to that? You know, a time-based cycle approach is the best management practice in our business, right? There's no question about that. Um, you know, at National Grid, we have been doing a form of that approach for over 40 years consistently. Um, in my prior prior role, um, working for Central Vermont Public Service, Green Mountain Power, same same situation up there as well. Uh, time-based approach uh, for, for, for decades. Really what kind of turned the page or really made us uh, pay attention and, and look at, um, you know, leveraging different tools to take a more condition-based approach, right? Leveraging technology to help us with that. Frankly, we had some headwinds that is quite common, not just with National Grid, but really with a lot of utility companies out there. Um, as we all know, the uh, vegetation management uh, contractor, contractor service, um, they have really um, a significant difficulty in acquiring resources, talent, people to do this work. It's getting harder and harder every day. Um, you know, one one thing that I, I, I relay to, to folks that I talk with is, you know, early in my career, 20 years ago, um, when I had the opportunity to work really close with our, with our tree workers from our contractors uh, work, workforce, was you see, say, 10 tree workers leave the business. Usually, nine of those would come right back. They, a lot of them would come back to the same exact vendor, same exact contractor. Maybe they come back to a different contractor and change the color of their shirt, color of their hat. The dynamic today, the dynamic has shifted so much today that if you have 10 tree workers leave, you'd be lucky to see one of them come back in the industry. One, if you're lucky. So our, our contractors are, are investing more to keep the current talent they have and they're investing more to try to recruit more talent. So as a result, that comes at a premium. And utility companies like National Grid are seeing those costs um, in the work that's being priced year on year. In, in, in a lot of cases, sometimes we'll see double-digit increases in a given year. Um, certainly not a sustainable model. Uh, there's things that do suffer as a result of that. And one of the things that suffered for us is our annual cyclical work plan, You know those, those miles that we prune. And as a result, we found ourselves pulling work off the work plan, deferring work, kicking the can down the road per se. And that certainly is not a sustainable strategy as well. We got to the point where we were deferring 10, 15% of our work plan. Um, so that was really one catalyst that, that, that led us to looking at more of a condition-based approach. 
on top of that, at the same time um, as all that was coming coming to a to a head, we had one of the worst reliability performance years at National Grid, specifically in our Massachusetts jurisdiction. Um, you know, we have a duration target of about a hundred and let's say 150 minutes. It's 147 minutes at the time. Um, we more than doubled that in 2020. We had over 300 minutes of duration on average for the system, far exceeded our reliability targets um, set by our department, um, our DPU. So as a result, you know, our executives, uh, in particular, the vice president I reported to, they didn't want to repeat that. So we need to figure out how can we write the ship? How can we figure out to do vegetation in a, a, a better manner, leveraging data? Because we are a data-rich company. All of all utilities are data-rich. But how can you bring all that together and leverage that to really get better insights and make decisions that that are actionable? So there's a couple pieces there. I, I hopefully we can dive into on on the data versus making it actionable because that is a gap a lot of people have to struggle with. But um, but as far as the path of what led National Grid to really make a fundamental change uh, from a a you know a long history of time based approach on our on our vegetation management to you know condition based approach with insights. That's really what led us there. Is, is those those largely those two. Two causes. You know, the time-based, I think, emerged in the 80s, and it, it made sense. But we've come a long way, and I, I am just so excited to see this because I think uh, the thought leaders like you are starting to move the industry away from time-based, and it's about time. Uh, it does take change, though. Uh, did you have trouble bringing your team along board with that? So when you look at like my team, vegetation strategy, um, you know, part of our role is really the R and D arm of vegetation management. So, you know, based on our, our on really our charge within the organization, we got to think outside the box. We got to kind of look at what, what's out there for other opportunities that can really move the needle on the way we approach our, you know, and, and approach our, our our strategies, approach approach within the designs of our work plans, and ultimately the execution. As those work plans, even though uh, we are "quote unquote" the R and D, you know, uh, uh, folks of vegetation strategy for National Grid, there's certainly still some reluctance, right? Because it comes down to trust. Because we've been doing things a certain way for so long, you know they work. Perhaps maybe you get a little bit comfortable with it. That could be part of it too. But they've worked. Um, but the key is recognizing. Because we've done it that way for so long, does that really make it the right way to do it? Maybe, maybe not. But nonetheless, even within even within my organization and my team, there's still certainly um, you know people are a, a suspect of of technology and, and is it right? Now we look at our operations group that actually works with our contractors in the field. It is a big lift to get them on board to say, yeah, this is the way we're going to go. This is the change we're going to make. Um, it takes time. And a lot of that time is exposing our staff um, to the technology, to the outputs, and invalidating those outputs. We've been using a condition-based approach now for over two years with about a year and a half of actual execution in the field. We still validate. Matter of fact, we're going out next week in the field to do more validation on the data and the outputs that we get from our vendor. Um, It does take time. It does take effort. 
Um, but it's needed. Um, you, you, if you don't trust the information, if you don't trust the outputs, you're not going to go very far with it. So do you have a uh, maximum uh, a tolerance limit or is what they would refer to? But uh, So you can defer some circuits, accelerate some, or whatever your uh, scheduling unit is. Is there a maximum? Good question, Phil. So like, like any any part of your program, you know, you, you make your own business rules, you know, based on the constraints uh, that you are working with. And as a result, you could take technology and the output um, at face value and it could push it out eight years, could push it out nine, ten years. We as a company said, no, we don't want any any of our circuits going longer than seven years. All right. Um, so, so we're managing some of that that uncertainty or, or, or long-term risk by, by limiting the, the length that some of this work can go. Um, not to say that some of these circuits can't go six, seven years. Uh, some, some can, um, but nonetheless, we just weren't comfortable to, to extend that um, out however far you know, the model will, will dictate, right? We did want to set rules on that. And there's certainly other business rules that we put in place as well within the model that, that, that we're using uh, to make sure that we're capturing synergies and efficiencies, right? Uh, historically, we would bundle several circuits together as a package, and we put that out, out to bid to our contractors or, or award that to our contractors. Um, part of the optimization approach is you don't necessarily bundle those together anymore. They could be individual circuits. But there's still a risk um, in certain geographic areas that that's not really all that efficient. You know, you, you think about some of the smaller circuits in the city of Worcester, Massachusetts, for example. You know, these are these could be a tenth of a mile long, right? So these circuits don't have a lot of exposure. They're short. Um, you know, the concern is we don't want to forget about these, right? Because to do those coupled with other circuits in the area still does make sense. Um, so we end up designing business rules within the model to say, if we're going to identify a circuit on this street, well, we want to incorporate these other smaller segments so we can you know, get some sort of you know economies of scale as well when the contractor does go in there and do that. We don't want them in there for a day or two and then they got to travel an hour away to do their next job. That certainly doesn't make sense as well. So there's certainly some efficiencies uh, that we that we recognize that we need to put in place. Bert, since you're only a couple of years into this, you haven't really seen a full life cycle, right? Of you know, you have a limited data set, but in that limited data set. What are some? What are one or two of the things that you've experienced where you're like, "Huh, we didn't expect that, or we didn't anticipate this," and wow, this poses a pretty complex challenge. I know you mentioned like some of these micro circuits, but what are what are one or two other things that are have surprised you um, in in a not so good way? You know, identifying um, overhang. So tree density is pretty straightforward, especially if you're using satellite. Um, it's pretty straightforward to get the, get the, the density. But then when you get the measurements around the wire, you know, that space and the vegetation encroachment within that space, uh, the overhang was tough. What was interesting was it wasn't consistent. Um, certain geographic areas, and that could have been terrain issues, um, it, it had a little bit more difficult. The technology had a little bit more difficult time um, being uh, at a high level of accuracy identifying overhang. Um, so that's information that we feed back to the vendor. They feed back in, within the model, and we continue again to do validation around that as well. So those those changes that are being done um, with the vendor, you know, is that actually resulting in better accuracy, right? 
because it goes back to again being accurate, making sure that our 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 our, our resources, our stakeholders internally can trust the data. Uh, so that's key. So those are the things that we that we found um, on the onset that were a little surprising that they couldn't really decipher the uh, the overhang and that encroachment of overhang because you know where a lot of the outages come from. They come from above. So it's really important to get that right. Tell us how you're using technology to drive this. If you recall when we talked about kind of what was the path that led us to where we are today, um, and, and part of that was deferring the work because we couldn't afford to deliver the work plan as designed, right? So one year, I think it was 2018 or 19, we actually leveraged our data science group to help us make make a decision on what work should we include, what work can we defer or push down the road. And um, we did that process. So we leveraged all of our data. We leveraged our GIS data, our outage, our outage uh, data, um, the history of our vegetation management inputs. The one thing we lacked in, in doing that process internally, at least from, from my view, was the near real-time condition of vegetation adjacent to our overhead conductors. So working with, we work with AI Dash um, on, on leveraging um, the optimized approach. And what they bring to the table, obviously, is ingesting all that information that I just mentioned, but they can capture the real near real-time vegetation conditions around our assets. Um, so that's that really is is the game changer, whether you use satellite, whether you want to use LIDAR, you want to use Geiger mode LIDAR, or any other remote technology that's available within our industry. Um, that's the piece that really really turns turns the uh turns the ship in the right direction is understanding what does that vegetation encroachment look like the density a lot of folks don't understand really what the density of vegetation is on their system uh, you know we recently um, acquired western power delivery in the uk and of course when you acquire uh, another another utility company you start benchmarking right you start you start talking to them and say hey what are you doing that's really cool what are we doing that's really cool or, or not um and, and you try to make comparisons and, and you ask the question, you know, what's your tree density? Oh, we don't know. They know what's, how many spans have vegetation that requires work in the next four to five years, but they don't have an idea of trees per mile, right? Um, they look at it an entirely different way. And, and a lot of utilities in North America don't necessarily understand uh, their tree density and how that relates to uh, impacts from a liability standpoint. Uh, so that's one thing that really has... Um, I guess enlightened us is having that insight on the vegetation and how it's, and frankly, how it's changing as well out there. So is it just about tree conditions when you do your assessment and decide, you know, the priority, uh, what else do you factor in? Yeah. So, so it really comes down to criticality. And when you're looking at criticality, um, you know, the, the tree conditions are certainly a, a major, a major part of that significant part of that. But that's not certainly to your point, Phil. That's not the only part, right? It's also about you know how has that circuit or part of your system performed in recent history, right? Outages. Um, then you look at the assets that are out there. You know, miles of overhead wire, miles of overhead bare wire. Uh, is it is it bundled cable like Hendrix type construction, or is it open three phase, you know, bare wire? Um, critical customers that are served on those circuits. Right. So we feed that into the model as well. So we understand where our critical customers are, you know, our hospitals, um, you know, shelters that that may be occupied and utilized during major events, uh, police fire response, uh, first responder um, 
customers. So all that's part of it too. And that all plays in, plays into really the criticality score of each individual circuit. And certainly that criticality score can change year on year based on, um, really it could, it could be based on the way the wind blows and the way it changes the integrity and health of your vegetation. I just wanted to shift gears a little bit away from, you know, obviously like you guys have a pretty thoughtful sort of approach and it's iterative and, you know, you've got technology providers and internal stakeholders. I mean, obviously utility environments can be very complex in terms of getting things to change and then building a sustainable process. Um, let's talk a little bit about the people side of it. You know, how, how complex has that been uh, to, to introduce this change and get all the different internal and external stakeholders on the same page and moving the ball down the field? You know, the shift from time-based to, to condition-based, it's like a different cultural shift, right? And there's an, a different expectation of people that are providing the technology, your internal leadership, the field folks, everyone. So getting everybody on the same page to accept some of that change and, and execute it the way you guys want it from plan to, you know, getting the work actually done. How complex has that been? getting everybody to, 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 you know, kind of work together to get this to work. Cause I can see that being, you know, very complex for other utilities. And maybe that's why they don't make that transition because the change management part is really the, the, the barrier is the inertia. What I found is that the, the key is, is getting all the stakeholders to the table, right? Getting the right stakeholders to the table. Um, I, I can think back on other initiatives that have been done, you know, throughout my career where, you make a lot of progress. You're building this, this solution out or you're trying to resolve this problem. And then at a certain stage, you bring in additional stakeholders and now you're far too down the line to really, you know, to, to, to get that buy-in. Um, you know, you get the questions of why weren't we included at the, at the, at the start, right? Um, with this transformation of our vegetation management program, you know, we, we work really hard in trying to get our stakeholders in at, at an early early stage. Um, I, I will not sit here and say that, you know, bringing those stakeholders in at an early uh, stage makes things easier. It doesn't because um, they challenge every step of the way. Rightfully so. I challenge, even in my position, on, um, you know, on some of the items that we're working with and, and some of the outputs that we're seeing. Um, I think it's appropriate. I think, I think it's needed. Um, but the key is really to answer the question is, is, is bringing the right people to the table, making sure that they have a voice, making sure that they have a decision, right? They're part of the decision. Um, cause at the end of the day, if you can't get everybody in agreement, um, it's not gonna, it's, it's, it's not gonna pass muster and it's not gonna be utilized in the field. I applaud you guys because you're, you're not a small utility. Um, and, in order to do that, to get everybody at the table and kind of grind through, you know, to get where even you guys are today is, is hugely impressive. And so definitely, uh, you know, congrats on, on that positive movement. I know it's not perfect, but you're definitely leading the industry. I think as one of the utilities that's made that transition is making that transition. So that's pretty, pretty amazing. So. What about the managing up? Was it hard to get the executives to. So that's a great question, Phil. That is probably where we have the mo- some of the most support 
right? Because one thing I will say about National Grid is we are all in on digital solutions. This company wants to leverage digital solutions, not just for vegetation management, for, for many aspects of our business. Um, we have three or four um, significant digital evolution products going right now um, in addition to our vegetation management optimization um, product. And the company is all in. Uh, you know, before we we got started, we were chatting about uh, a meeting that I, I had the honor of being a part of on Wednesday. We had an executive sh- uh, showcase in Boston where we had our CEO from the UK over and all his direct reports. And we had the opportunity to, to show them, you know, what VMO is, and you know, kind of where we've been and where we're at today. And they were all um, very pleased, um, very supportive, uh, asked great questions. Um, but the, but really the, the, the takeaway was they want to see us leverage technology. They want us to leverage digital solutions to make us more nimble, not just for ourselves, but more nimble on behalf of our customers, right? Cause that's, that's at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Um, but, but the point is, my point is, is that yeah, national grids all in on digital technology. Um, you know, we look at things as a buy, build or hybrid approach when it comes to technology and they're not afraid to do either. Um, it's all about making the, the, the best decision for for really the the uh, the objective and the solution you're trying to achieve. I'd like to go back and revisit something. You talked about your data-driven, um, but you did distinguish between uh, data and actionable data. So can you explain that? As I mentioned earlier, you know, we're, we, we partner with AI Dash, um, but I like to talk with, frankly, their competitors, right? Um I've had different levels of relationship with with uh, their competitors throughout the years, um, from you know remote sensing um, offerings to to software, right? Um, and I like to see kind of the evolution of how all that's working across those different vendors, because a lot of vendors out there have great analytics. They have beautiful dashboards that you can utilize that that you can apply to your system, um, and and I'll dive into these different dashboards with with different vendors, whether it's a a GE, IBM, or a LiveEO, or AI Dash, any of them. And I'll look at their their information, and really, after I I review everything and kind of ask my questions and probe, I, my one of my final questions is, okay, where well, I push the button to to get a plan, right? Where where's the execute button? How do I get an extraction out of that wonderful? analytics software database uh, to give to our vegetation operations group or hand to a tree crew. Say, this is what you got to do, right? This is what's prioritized. And some people have that. A lot of them don't. Um, And and that's the piece that I think really, to to a degree, holds back our industry on making that shift to leveraging the technology to help, uh, help us optimize our approach. Right. It's about how do you, how, how do you, how do you build the trust? And then how do you make it actionable? Where, where's the button I push, right? To get my work plan. You just gave everyone at AI Dash a lot of PTSD that you're, you're constantly dating. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I always gotta um, be looking. I always gotta be looking. We'll probably bring this, our, our chat to a, a bit of a close, Bert. But before we go, uh, definitely wanna, uh, kind of talk a little bit about your, your hobby. I don't even know if it's fair to call it just a hobby, but. Your passion about maple syrup is uh, is very near and dear to me because I'm Canadian and I, I find myself I, I think I'm a connoisseur of maple syrup. So, what what drove that interest? And uh, you know, 
you know, how much time do you have put, put into that? Cause it's pretty awesome. Passion. I don't know if passion is the right word. It's a bit of an addiction. Uh, but there could be worse addictions, I suppose. So, so as I mentioned earlier in my career, I spent nearly 20 years, um, in Vermont, right? And when you're in Vermont, there's, there's a couple things you do. You know, you ski, um, you, you might chase white-tailed deer, um, or you might make maple syrup. And, you know, when I had, when I worked up there at Central Vermont Public Service, Green Mountain Power, um, a lot of colleagues made maple syrup. It was just kind of the thing people do. So I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in different sugar houses with friends and, and helping out. And eventually you, you get the bug. You're like, hey, I got some trees on my property, you know? I had 10 acres up there and I looked around and yeah, I got some nice sugar maples up here. And I ended up putting out 12 buckets. And then the next year I put out, I think, 30 buckets. And then I was up to like 65 buckets. And I said, you know what? This is stupid. I'm not chasing buckets anymore. Then I got into tubing and all the maple tubing went up and uh, and getting into about a couple hundred taps in Vermont. And then um, when we decided to make the move to National Grid and and move move back down to Massachusetts, um, it was very interesting because we're looking at a lot of properties, a lot of houses. And (laughs) meanwhile, my wife's looking at the house and I'm looking in the woods, right? Um, so, you know, I'm looking for the next, next spot. I'm like, well, I'd, I'd like to keep this going. Cause you know, we made maple syrup up in Vermont for I think seven or eight years when we lived there, you know, I got my, my two daughters involved quite a bit. They loved it. Um, I got picture, a picture of my, uh, six year old, seven year old daughter, six years old at the time. And she had this wheelbarrow and I had this thing heap with, with firewood for the, for the evaporator. And she's wheeling that thing into the garage where I, where I had the sugar house and, uh, you know, just memories like that. And I kind of want, I really wanted to continue those memories. Right. So, so I do, I do have a sugar house here on the property, a 12 by 16 sugar house. And, and, and the irony of it is I have more than double the number of taps here in Massachusetts than I did in Vermont. Things are set up a little bit better, a little bit more efficient here. Um, I, I was able to learn a lot of things over those years too, and learn what not to do. Um, so yeah, certainly, certainly, um, uh, certainly got it going and, and try to, you know, trying to make efficiencies where I can and still out there working on the place. So, but yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's, I don't know if I call it a passion, a passion. It's a bit of addiction or obsession, but um, it's hard because you drive around and you're like, Hey, there's some maples. Maybe I can knock on that person's door. And, you know, that's <laughs> all I see. Yeah. But uh, no, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun now for sure. Well, well Bert, thanks for, uh, thanks for making time today. This was a pretty, pretty informative chat. Great chat. Great seeing you. Um, we'll definitely, uh, Next time I'm up in Mass, we'll, we'll definitely come find you and try some of that maple syrup. So looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks, right, Bert. So. I think a lot of utilities are going to be following you. I hope so, Phil. It's, it's, it's a new best practice. I really, I really believe that. That's it for this episode of Trees and Lines, brought to you by Iapetus Holdings. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. If you have any questions or comments on any of our episodes or ideas for topics or guests, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at treesandlines at iapetusllc.com. We'll chat with you soon.